If you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 77. We've looked in the past at Psalms that praise the Lord for sleep. This is a psalm and deals with what happens when you don't get sleep. And specifically, we're able to look through the psalmist's thoughts as he lays awake at night. A few questions that might just set the stage for us is the questions that might have been going through his mind or why do tragedies take place? Why does an all-powerful God that split the Red Sea, that called all things into existence, allow evil in the world and for horrible things to take place? More specifically or pointed, why does God allow his people, and those people whom he has called to follow him and that he has entered into covenant with, why does he allow his people to experience affliction with what seems to be of no concern towards him? In other words, why is it that oftentimes God's people suffer and it seems that God is absent? And so we follow the psalmist working through a sleepless night, trying to figure out why God has seemingly abandoned his people. If you've ever laid awake at night because your mind is overwhelmed with the anxieties of this world, then this psalm will relate to you. So let us hear the word of God, beginning in verse 1. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises in an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God. And 
May he bless it as we have read it and now study it. There's many interesting turns that take place. The psalmist acknowledges the desperation of his situation, really the desperation of Israel itself as a nation, as they're experiencing the disciplining hand of the Lord. And he asks the question, has the Lord forgiven us? And he's looking for an answer. As you go through this, you'll notice he never comes to a solution. He never has resolution for why God is doing the things that God is doing. But he just simply comes to the resolution of this in his own heart that God is holy. And God's ways are holy. And that whatever God does is right and good. And how great is our God? The one who could split the Red Sea. I think that sometimes as we face things in life, that's our only answer is to know that in the difficulties of life that God's ways are holy. And in knowing that, we know that whatever we're facing is according to God's good plan. He begins in the first three verses, you'll notice, crying out to the Lord. And he says, I, I cry aloud to God. And so you can imagine that he's, he's out loud speaking in his prayers. He says, it repeats it twice to emphasize that he's praying to God and the intensity of the prayer. And so you see in this verse, in verse 1, two things that mark this prayer. And the first is desperation. The fact that he cries aloud and then it's written out twice as speaking of the the, the disparaging nature that he finds himself in. And then you find also confidence. And where do you see that confidence? He says, and he will hear me. So there's desperation in this prayer. So whatever is troubling the psalmist, whatever is troubling Israel has led him to this cry out to God. But then there's confidence. There's confidence, and that is this, that the Lord hears our prayers. Our prayers are not empty crying out. Even if we're in the situation of the psalmist where it seems like God has abandoned us, and we wonder, will God ever turn to us? The psalmist tells us that our our prayers don't go unheard, but the Lord will hear our prayers. We also don't always get the answer that we want. As we read this psalm, the psalmist doesn't get an explanation for why God is doing what he's doing. And we have to rest that that's okay. We have to rest in the sovereignty of God that that's all right. Notice how it goes on in verse 2, speaking of this crying out to the Lord, in the day of my trouble. Many commentators note that in that phrase, in the day, is speaking of a practice or a habit of the psalmist of going to the Lord in prayer. Now think about that. If this is speaking of a habit or a prayer, this is not just a one-time event, but it marks the life of the psalmist, a life of prayer, and we see his responses to cry out to God in times of trouble, but that it is part of his normal practice. And specifically here, it says, in the day of my trouble, which is in this period of time, he says, I seek the Lord. In other words, his direction then is towards God in this prayer as he's having problems, as he's having troubles. He's not blaming the Lord. He doesn't want distance from the Lord, knowing the Lord is bringing these things, but rather he is seeking the Lord. And he does this at the night, in the night. You'll notice that. 
in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. In other words, he's, he's persistently praying. His eyes will not close. Sleep will not come to him. He has persistent and ongoing prayer throughout the night. And he says these very almost inexplicable words. My soul refuses to be comforted in the prayer. He's not able to ever relax, if you will. He's not able to rest, but rather he is wide awake at night, crying out to the Lord and finds no relief. Spurgeon says it's this. He says it's impossible to comfort those who refuse to be comforted. You may bring them to the waters of the promise, but who shall make them drink it if they will not do so? He's in a place of constant crying out to the Lord, but refuses to be comforted. In fact, verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now notice what he says. God will hear me. I'm continually seeking the Lord. I'm continually crying out to the Lord. But then he says, when I remember God, that is when I think upon God, I, I cry out. When I, when I meditate, I'm weakened. The comforts were ineffectual to him. And rather than being comforted by God, it actually leads him to a place of moaning. I don't know if you've ever been in prayer like that. Where you're pouring out your soul to God. And there's no comfort in it. Where circumstances are so difficult that it leads you to a desperate place of crying out to God. And yet it just seems like God is not even present. And then when you think of God, it makes you frightened. Can we see the desperation? Can we feel the desperation in the psalmist? Whether he's praying for himself or whether he's praying for the nation, there is a sense of desperation and forsakenness. And he goes on to explain that in the next several verses, that he's forsaken of the Lord. And as he, we look at verses 4 through 9, he's recounting the past, and it only draws forth the question, with God's almighty power and the reign of evil in our world. Why isn't something happening? Why isn't God doing something? The almighty, powerful God. So he returns to this idea that he's, he can't sleep. Look at verse 4. And this, verses 4 through 6, describes what the sleepless night looked like. You hold my eyes open. You hold my eyelids open. Excuse me. He attributes his sleepless night to the Lord. You will not allow me to sleep. I can lay my head on the pillow. I can try to close my eyes, but you're not allowing me to sleep. And so he's saying that the Lord in, in his providence has brought about circumstances, put them upon him to where now he is in crying out to the Lord and he cannot sleep. Let me just say something about sleep and the sovereignty of God. Our sleep is actually a blessing. In Psalm 3, 
David recounts being surrounded by his enemies. A distressing situation, if you will. And he says this, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David credits the Lord for his ability to sleep, even though he's surrounded by enemies. He says, this was something, a, a grace of God that I could rest. You go on to Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, it returns to that idea and that theme of being able to sleep and rest in God, or not being able to. And here, the psalmist is not able to sleep. Do things ever keep you up at night? Does adversity or circumstances cause you to lose sleep? Does wickedness in the world keep you up at night? Does sin keep you up at night? Let me ask you this question to ponder as we read this psalm and we see the psalmist struggling through a sleepless night, and I'm sure that we've all had sleepless nights. I've had many sleepless nights. Ask this question of yourself. Is a sleepless night a waste? Is a sleepless night a waste? Is it just a mean that you're going to have a hard time the next day and have to drink extra coffee? Is that what a sleepless night means when we look at the sovereignty of God, the providence of God? When we have a sleepless night, is that just an opportunity for us to be frustrated and toss and turn and kick the covers off, put the covers back on? Or is it actually an opportunity for something greater to take place than sleep? That's the question before us that I think we have to wrestle with. So how do, we, how do we handle sleepless nights? Often, and this is, this is, I'm guilty of this, what do you do when you're, you're having a sleepless night? You distract yourself. Maybe it's read a book, maybe it's pull out the iPad, watch a movie, maybe it's turn on the TV if you have a TV in your room. Maybe it's you get up, maybe it's you have a snack. We do something to distract ourselves so that we can reset our rhythm and then go back to sleep. But I want us to consider, is that always the best thing that we should do? I want you to notice the trouble he's in. He says, the Lord is holding his eyelids open. It's so bad that he says, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. So whatever is taking place, the distress is so great, he can't put words to it. No words just come out. And that can happen because someone is so distressed of mind that they're not able to string together coherent sentences. Or it could just be that there's, it's inexplicable to him why he's dealing with this. And there's just no, there's nothing that can come out. So what does he do while he lays in bed? He says, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So he's saying, I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to think of the songs of Israel that we would sing of our God. I'm trying to think of the, of the times past. So that's what he's trying to do. He's not wasting the, the night away, but rather is trying to think upon God. Now, normally, reflecting on God's past faithfulness brings rest. But what we notice here, 
the rest doesn't come. And as he thinks upon the past, the days of old, and thinks upon the songs that they would sing, he begins to ask questions. He asks a series of questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? Israel's experienced rejection. They're under the disciplining hand of God. He says, and never be favorable. That is that God finds no pleasure in them. And just to kind of get an idea of maybe of guessing what that looked like to them. Favor from God in Israel looked like this in Psalm 85 verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. So in the psalmist's minds, it was something very tangible in which God would give them favor. But they're no longer pleasing before God. They're only experiencing His discipline. Then he asks this question. Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Well, that's the Hebrew word has said. His mercy, His compassion, it's covenant love. It's that love that never ceases. It's that love that is eternal that God places upon His people. It's the very love that elects us. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? That's impossible. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has, has, has the, the fount of blessings been shut off? Has all that we've experienced of blessing in the past, is that, has that come to a time where it's ended? Has God forgotten to be gracious? That's like asking the question, has His steadfast love forever ceased? Has, he, has God forgotten to be gracious? God cannot forget to do anything. I mean, God is gracious by His nature. Yes, this final question. Has He in anger shut up His compassion? That means to stop the flow of His compassion if we were to just interpret these questions, it's this, is that all that we knew of God and of His character and of His nature, we're not experiencing any of that. And all we're experiencing is His displeasure and anger upon us. God has revealed His anger to the psalmist. And those things that He has promised... They seem to have been forgotten by God. Now we know God neither forgets nor ceases to be who He is. However, the psalmist is asking whether God has forgotten everything He promised to Israel. This is the weight of the distress He's feeling. You can understand why He's up all night wrestling with this, crying out to God without ceasing. So what's he to do? Well, you'll notice that he had already said, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and this only brought him to further desperation. 
so verse 10, he goes on to, to continue these questions and, and actually to ponder the past. And he said, verse 10, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, if you'll note, if you, you have an ESV Bible, there's, there should be a little number there that points you to the bottom of a footnote that says there's another way to translate this, and I think it helps us to understand it, and that is this. Here's the, here's the translation. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. In other words, what we experienced in blessing has changed. And specifically, Israel had broken God's covenant, and now his hand was against them. So we ask, your hand has changed. This is what caused the pain. That the, the blessings of the covenant that God had promised to his people have ceased. And so what grieves the psalmist? It's that Israel had sinned. And now they're bearing the consequences of that sin. And it's that bearing of the consequences that leads him to this desperation of crying out to God. So look what he does. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Now, he, he said, I'm going to do this already. But when he did it, it brought him further distress. So he says it again. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And you can kind of think of it like this. as Sometimes we think back upon something that God has blessed us with. Say, salvation. And we think back upon that, but then we quickly go back to our circumstances and our situation. Yes, God saved me, but I'm dealing with all of these things right now. And so you can imagine that he reflects upon God and what God has done in the past. And then he reverts his attention to the focus of the moment. And as it only brings him into further desperation, what does he say to himself? I need to go back and think about what God has done for me. In other words, it seems as if he's saying, I need to continue to think about what God has done. This is speaking of an intenseness of his thinking upon the Lord. Verse 12 says this, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So in other words, as he said, I will think about these things. Now he specifically, he says, I'm going to remember them. I'm going to ponder them. I'm going to meditate upon them. In other words, he's going to put them at the forefront of his thoughts. What does it mean to meditate? Well, specifically, it just means simply to set aside time to think about God as he has revealed himself. What better time than when you can't sleep? What better time than when your mind is at distress to think about what God has done? So think about this. He thinks about God. It brings no relief but only terror. And so what does he do? 
I need to keep thinking about God. I need to meditate upon God. I need to meditate upon what He has done. You see, the psalmist started in desperation. And almost you can almost feel the frustration for a person that's saying, God, you're keeping my eyelids open. We rarely stop to think, I'll speak for myself, rarely stop to think in critical, desperate situations. But that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. When things are heightened and difficult, that's when he stops. You've probably heard about the Martin Luther's prayer life. Martin Luther was well known for his, his time in prayer. He was leading the Reformation. He was counseling pastors. He was constantly preaching, constantly writing. His life was in danger of assassins constantly. And he said, when I'm my busiest, when I have the most things that I've got to do, that's when I usually stop to pray for an hour or two. An hour or two. He was leading a revolution in the world. You, you think about, it was a man that knew the intensity and need of prayer. And we shouldn't hold him up to be a saint. He also said he goes weeks without prayer and feels like God is far away from him. But the psalmist is telling us to stop and think in those situations upon who God is. You know, and and it's perhaps in the desperation that it is best to be reminded of God's nature and the salvation that we have in Christ. He says, after this meditation, after this pondering, he comes to this conclusion of God. And, and this, is, this is really the hinge of the whole psalm. While the psalm never answers the question of why, he comes to this resolution in this, Your way, O God, is holy. Just interpret this this way. Anything that befalls the Christian, it is good and according to God's glory. He means it for your good. Any situation that we face, as horrible as it can be, tragic as it can be, God is just, God is righteous, He is kind in all of His works. And I want you to notice this. He doesn't attribute the holiness to God in the text. That's important. He knows God is holy. And this is why this is such an important verse for us to understand. He recognizes that God is holy. God reveals himself to Israel as set apart, as different, as the unmoved mover of all things. He doesn't say, God, you're holy. Notice what he says. Your way. In other words, what I'm experiencing according to your sovereign plan, according to your providence... Set apart by you. This is according to your plan. This is a difficult admission. 
It's easy to say in difficult situations, yes, but we know God is holy. How about saying this in the difficult situation, but God's providence is holy. That whatever unfolds in my life is according to the ways of a holy God that has determined all things from eternity and is immutable and unchanging. Your ways, oh God, are holy. I think we, we all recognize God is holy, but the real test is whether we think His way is holy, even when we're facing His disciplinary hand. You see, God is right to punish His people. God is right to bring discipline upon His people. In fact, as the author of Hebrews tells us, that's a sign that we're His children. God is right in disciplining us. God is right in refining us. And He refines us in and through difficult circumstances. Wouldn't it be nice if God just would would refine us through giving us everything that we ever wanted. We wouldn't be refined. We wouldn't be shaped to the image of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, is it, is it, is it important for us to be shaped to the image of Christ? Is that the greatest thing that we could have? And we have to say, then your way, O oh God, is Holy. He says, what God is great like our God? And the psalmist later answers this question of how great is God. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. I mean, it, it can't be compared to anything. Great is our God, according to one, uh, Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The greatness of the Lord cannot be weighed. It cannot be measured. And so he acknowledges God's way is holy and that God is great, that there is no God that is good, look great like our God. He says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among your peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now again, compared to the last time he considered the ways of old, it brought him terror. This time as he reflects upon him, he says, you're the God who delivered your people through tremendous circumstances. But I think that the specific reference to the Exodus and the mention of Jacob and Joseph is really crucial. Because you'll remember Jacob working all of those years for his father-in-law Laban and how he was mistreated, how he ran in his life from Esau, his brother, and how he waited upon the Lord. And there was probably times where Jacob was thinking, how long, O Lord? You think of Joseph being sold by his brothers, the worst circumstances, and being sold off to slavery, put into a jail because he was wrongly accused with Potiphar. Isn't it interesting that he references Jacob and Joseph, people that endured hardship, that, that, that were rejected, that were sent off. And for Joseph, thrown in a jail. Then you just think about 
the children of Jacob and Joseph, how long did they live under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, saying, Lord, how long? How long did God's people languish in a foreign land that was not the promised land, wondering, Lord, how long do we have to be here? Isn't it interesting that he says, your way is holy, and then he reflects upon those people that experienced injustices in this life? And he's still concluding, your way in their life was holy. Notice how he refers to the Exodus. I want to read verses 16 through 20 together because he interweaves in this the story of the Exodus and Mount Sinai together in such wonderful, beautiful, poetic language. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Did you grasp there how the psalmist is interweaving the Exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea and Sinai? And, And he does it in this way that he starts off with the splitting of the Red Sea, that you split the seas, but then he shifts over to Sinai. In verse 18, At the end of verse 17, really, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. The lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That's taking us to Mount Sinai where God is giving the covenant with Moses. And then he shifts back to the splitting of the sea. And notice how he says it. Your way was through the sea, that impossible journey. You split the sea. Notice what he says. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And what is known by that is that you are the one who led us through this. We couldn't see, but you did it. Your sovereign hand was behind all of it. And notice how he says, you did this through people. You did this through Moses and Aaron. Now you're expecting to read verse 21 that says, and so Lord, you'll rescue us. But verse 21's not there. There is no verse 21. He doesn't doesn't come to a conclusion of why God was doing this. And oftentimes we don't know why God is doing what God is doing. And the only thing that we can rest in is this. Your way, oh God, is holy. How many of us would send our son to die for a people that hated him? But yet your way, God, is holy. So why do bad things happen? Because we live in a sin-fallen world. God uses means to accomplish His plans. He even uses the wicked that we experience in this world according to His plan. Now, what was the cause of Israel's trouble? 
sin. Israel had a hardened heart. They continually rejected God, rejected his word. God had given them material blessings on the condition of their obedience. When they failed, God would punish them and remove his his blessings upon them. We often think of our own sufferings in a like manner. That by obedience, God will somehow reward us. But however, this is not how it works, is it? Because actually, as we saw this morning in the Hebrews, even in your faithfulness, it's oftentimes that you experience hardship. Oftentimes, we face distressing situations in which it seems like we're helpless to deal with them. And perhaps oftentimes it's sin. And it's God's disciplining hand coming upon us. When when was the last time sin kept you up at night because of your struggles with it? Israel had sinned against God. They had been unfaithful to God, and it's keeping the psalmist up. What do we do in those situations? We do exactly what the psalmist did. We reflect on the fact that we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Is there anything greater that you could meditate on? Is there anything greater that could occupy our time with our eyes open because God's not giving us sleep that night. I think that when we look at our lack of sleep or distracted mind, the worst thing that we can do is fill it with other distractions. And I think the psalmist is teaching us that. I think what the psalmist is actually teaching us is that what we have to do in those moments is reflect upon God. And we might not come to an answer where we say, ah, that's why this is happening. But we can have a conclusion in our hearts that God's ways are holy. And whatever we're experiencing is according to his good and holy ways. And so we get to read how the psalmist goes through struggle. He considers the nature of God and specifically the exodus, and it leads him to this new understanding of worship of God. We we don't tend to think back upon the exodus, but we should go and think back on the second exodus. Our example is that we recall that the Father sent his Son to lead a people out of bondage and into a new creation and a new creation that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. And if we would but meditate upon that, we can rest even in sleeplessness in the fact that our God is holy and his ways are holy and he is great and his works are great and he is kind in all of his works, even in a sleepless night. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are full of grace and mercy. You, Father, have been merciful to your people 
from the beginning of time. Your mercy cannot be measured. It cannot be have a price tag put on it. There's nothing we could do to earn it. You were so gracious to your people that you have called. We do not deserve it, but yet you give it. Father, as we deal with struggles in our lives, as we oftentimes find ourselves in situations of frustration because of the circumstances of life, may we take this example and look to Christ in those moments to meditate upon his good work and what he has done for his people. May we rest in him and rest in the ways that your ways are holy. We need your grace for this, Father. And so we pray that you would give it abundantly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.